While my wife, Alana, and I are uh, members of Elmwood MB, this church um, and, and Panit and Gateway as a whole really has a special place in my heart for a number of reasons. I have family that attends, um, and I've made many friends throughout the congregation as well that are so dear to my wife and I, really. So it's really a joy whenever our paths cross. My name is Randy Middlestadt, though some of you may know me as Randy Mack. Uh, the students are usually calling me Mr. M., or they're calling me Mr. Ferguson, because I teach with Leonard Ferguson, and they just, it, anyways. It used to be Mr. Smith, or sometimes it's Mr. Berube, but whatever. I actually don't correct them half the time anymore, I just carry on. Um, so throughout the day, you can find me teaching grade 7 and 8. I'm usually upstairs. I cover ELA, social studies, Bible, and health. Um, I'm also found playing in the gym at recess time, or kicking a ball around with the kids when I'm on duty usually trying to see how many goals I can score before I find myself uh, saying, just one more minute, just one more minute, just one more minute, uh, before I remember I'm the one with the whistle and I get to decide when we go in. So I don't know who I'm convincing there. But it's a privilege for me to work at the King's School, it really is. And in a lot of ways, I'm thankful and I'm grateful to the school. I was hired the year I graduated university. Um, but there's really more to it than simply I got a degree and they hired me. How I ended up here is really uh, an example of the futility of man's efforts and what's possible when God's left in control. So to be honest, the last few years of my time at university were rather difficult for me. In 2013, my family said goodbye to a dear family friend who had passed away due to a tragic accident. And a month later, my my father would then announce that he was going to be leaving our family. And so amidst all the chaos in my life, I had resolved to bring about some order by my own doing. I was going to take my future into my own hands because apparently God's route was too difficult. So in my final two years of school, I took pride in good grades. I worked really hard and to be successful in class, and I made a point of building uh, a great resume that I was proud of. I had gathered good references, um, volunteer and work experience in relevant fields. Schools liked me. I was expecting some offers um, based on verbal agreements did all that networking and everything that they tell you you should do. I was engaged to my wife, and I had planned to be married in the summer following graduation. So everything was lining up perfectly. Except it wasn't, because one by one, the weeks went and the months went by, and all of my fellow uh, classmates were hired. Everyone else was hired. I had no callbacks. My emails were left without responses. And I was essentially alone and isolated. I had nothing, and I began to panic. I had a life plan. I was going to get married soon. Um, I had nothing. What was I going to do? And so I was, at the time, carrying uh, buckets of stucco around construction sites, and I'd come to accept the fact that I'd probably be doing that forever. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I did enjoy it to an extent, but I experienced a, a real season of doubt and realized that the efforts of man can actually only go so far. I really had forgotten one thing the entire time. I'd forgotten God. I'd not sought God's leading. I'd not stopped to submit my life and my plans to the sovereign God of the universe. And instead, I'd insisted on my own control for my life for far too long. So I submitted, and I begged forgiveness for my doubt, for my distance, and for my desire for God's control. I gave my future and my life into the hands of the Almighty, trusting him for provision and for a future wherever he wanted me to be. 
And it wasn't long after I prayed that when the school called me to come in for an interview. And then shortly after that, Susan called me to welcome me at the school. And so it seems that God had actually temporarily been withholding the callbacks I was expecting in order to make room for Susan's call. Because in the week that I signed my contract, uh, my callbacks and offers came in from many other places. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in my first year of teaching, um, I had friends and old acquaintances that actually reached out and still wanted me to come to other places, assuring me that they could help me switch if I wanted to. Um, But I turned them down and had to essentially explicitly tell them that God had brought me to the King's School and that the refreshing community and fellowship of fellow Christians in the workplace wasn't something that I think I could ever really give up. And it wasn't money that was going to convince me either. And so people scratched their heads at that in confusion, but I knew in my heart that this was God's will for my life. I see how God has brought all this together to the point where I'm actually standing now here with you this morning, and I'm humbled by that, I'm deeply grateful, um, and I'm ultimately reminded that God is in control. His control of my life is far better than my own. And it's interesting that since I I said this at Panet last week, I've actually had a number of teachers um, tell me that their experiences were quite similar quite similar to how they ended up at the King's School, um, and really saw God's leading that it was purposeful. And I know the admin prays extensively for the people that God wants at their school, and uh, I know that this has resonated with, with a few people. So it's been amazing hearing other testimonies come out of this since last week. So in the end, yes, I was married with a job, but the King's School is really more than just a job. It's, uh, it's a place to grow in your faith, and you're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, whether that actually be the students or the staff, and from a wide range of denominational backgrounds. And I personally have really loved getting out of my Mennonite bubble. I've really loved that, (laughs) experiencing the diversity of the body. I've loved it, experiencing the uniqueness of worship. It's been great. I've been blessed by different seasons at the school. I've worked with Elise. She was my teaching partner for a number of years. We became good friends with her and Will. Um, I'm always going to treasure that. I actually learned to enjoy coffee because of her. I used to drink tea, and so now I drink coffee because she loved coffee. And so now I work alongside one of my good friends, Leonard Ferguson. It's been a lot of fun getting to talk with him every day about life and theology and sports and education every day. And so here at the King's School, I work alongside my wife, um, and I actually now work with my mom, too, who's down in preschool. And I never would have imagined that that would have happened. Alana and I never dreamed that one day we would work together in the same school. We never stopped to even, like, imagine such a crazy scenario. And, uh, and yet here we are. And the day she told me um, that she was hired, I, actually, I wept tears of joy that, that this was even the outcome that God had for us. So as a staff, we gather for prayer twice a week. Um, Artemis said we pray. We do pray as a staff. We gather formally twice, but really it happens a lot more than just twice a week. We also have Christian accountability. There's support, encouragement. There's robust theological discussion. There's iron sharpening iron. And so these fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are outside of my own church congregation, yet they also know what's going on in my life and what my struggles and my fears and what my hopes are. And so teaching at the school is is teaching with family, with family in Christ and feeling the support of family. And so living openly as a Christian at the King's School 
has really strengthened me to be a brighter light outside of the walls of the school after 4 o'clock p.m. And so it's really common when we think of the school to think of the children. But an important piece of God's puzzle is the fact that the school also ministers to its staff, who each bring with them their own unique testimony of how God has used the school and its community for good in their lives and for God's glory. And it's really an example of Psalm 1 being lived out, which reads, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose life or leaf sorry, does not wither, Whatever they do prospers. At the King's School, to be a Christian and work here is to be fed spiritually, called and planted by God to work here in a place that doesn't celebrate what the rest of the world celebrates. We know then that there will be seasons of fruit, and in accordance with God's will, there will be prosperity and delight in the Lord. So, as a member of um, the King's School, I really would like to formally thank you all. Whether it's your prayers or finances in support of the school, the work that you do supporting us impacts more than just the students and more than just education, um, but it really does impact the, the lives of the staff quite deeply. So I'd like to shift gears here now, and um, we're going to move into our topic this morning, which is love. I know that the church already is in a series of love as well, um, which is wonderful. And this is a massive biblical topic, and so I, I cannot cover it all. Frederick M. Lemon wrote the hymn, The Love of God is Greater Far, and he put it this way. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And if you're not a fan of 19th century prose, I can summarize it a little bit more simply. If the ocean was ink for our pens and the sky was paper, we would run out of ink and paper trying to write about the love of God. And so instead this morning, I want to focus then on one specific aspect of God's love, which is sacrifice. Now, in the ESV translation of the Bible, and many others actually, the first time we see the word love used is in Genesis 22, when God speaks to Abraham. Now remember, this is the man whose wife could not have children, whom God had promised a child to. And Isaac is the fruit of God's promise. And this is what God said to Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 2, he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. And so if that story is unfamiliar to you, that might sound really problematic, and I promise you in the end, Isaac is not sacrificed. I promise you that. But this is the first time that we see the word love used in the Bible, and it's when God asks Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his son, and it's the son whom he loves. And we should immediately then hear echoes of the cross. We should immediately think about Jesus and the son, Jesus the son whom the father loves, who is offered up as sacrifice. And I think it really captures it there for us. That in one verse, at the beginning of the Bible, we're connected to John 3.16, way in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
And we see a theme of sacrifice that is so deeply tied to the concept of love. Sacrifice and love cannot be separated from each other. They go hand in hand even when we read the word love for the first time in the Bible. But that's not the whole verse because John 3.16 concludes with, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So something is selflessly done so that someone else may benefit from the act of love. And if we continue in the book of John, we hear Jesus say these words in chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is clear. Love is not self-serving, and instead we are called to love like he does. And how does Jesus love? Well, he goes to the cross for our sins. He lays down his life for his friends. Love is doing something for the good of others. Other people will benefit from the work that genuine love produces. So when the Bible talks about love, it's undeniably self-sacrificing so that someone else is going to benefit. But why? And you might be wondering this morning, why do I even need sacrifice? Why do I need God's sacrifice? What's the point of that? Well, allow me to illustrate the importance of it with an example from class. So Leonard and I have been walking through the New City Catechism with our students. He teaches that to the eights, and I teach the sevens. That's a brilliant curriculum put together by Tim Keller, who took scripture, um, some historical texts, the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, and Calvin's Geneva Catechism. And he adapted these things and designed a series of lessons and activities to help both adults and children learn the foundations of the Christian faith. And it's really opened up some awesome discussion in our class, just going back to the basic foundations. And one afternoon, we studied the Trinity. We talked about what the Trinity is and isn't, and how God exists in three persons, how all three persons relate and interact with one another, and the roles that they have. We looked at the helpful shield of the Trinity. Uh, maybe you've seen this, this diagram before. It's actually a historical diagram. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. But it really helps us as um, your mortals trying to grasp a human understanding of how God exists in a state unlike anything that we really can compare to here on earth. Anyway, we ran out of time, and the class went out for recess. They came back in, and so I wanted to wrap up the lesson before we moved on to our next subject. And so I drew the Trinity diagram again on the whiteboard and summarized by talking about the fact that God has always existed eternally in relationship as the Trinity. God is perfect, holy, righteous, and without sin. And then I drew man further down on the whiteboard. And so this is where things went off script. And as I stared at the illustration on the board, I was reminded of many powerful biblical truths, the first of which is that God is holy, perfect, and righteous. But we, however, are not. We don't need to look very far back into our lives to remind ourselves of that fact. This morning, the past few days, the past week, I'm sure all of us have stumbled, fallen, embraced, or even committed sin without one second's hesitation. And Paul in Romans 7 reminds us of this when he writes, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's actually really comforting to know that even the Apostle Paul himself struggled in his war against sinful flesh. And Paul reminds us again earlier in Romans, in Romans 3, 10 to 12, where he writes, As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And if we look back at our diagram of God and man, we see a massive unclosable gap. So God is righteous, holy, and perfect, but mankind is not. Mankind is sinful and broken and not righteous at all. So how could we ever enter into a relationship with God? And so we discussed this as a class. I asked out loud, do you know what it means for us to have accepted Christ, to have declared him as Lord and Savior of our lives? I drew an arrow down from the sun to mankind. When we declare Jesus as our Lord and Savior, because what he did on the cross for us, it changes the way God the Father looks at us. God the Father no longer sees us as our sins deserve. Instead, he sees Christ's righteousness in us. So when we talk about having Christ in us, we're actually celebrating the imputed righteousness that we've received through Jesus Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. And that's what God the Father sees in us. He doesn't see our sinfulness, but he sees Christ because of Christ's sacrificial love. And this is undeserved. I know for a fact that I've not lived a righteous life. I know I have sinned. Yet Jesus took all of my sin and my disobedience as he bore the wrath of God so that I would be forgiven. My sin was exchanged for Christ's perfection and his righteousness. So because I cling to the cross of my Savior, my Heavenly Father sees me as righteous. It was a sacrificial love, undeserved, so that we would benefit. And really, that's the most important act of love that I can think of. And its impact is far-reaching. Everything that we could possibly worry about now suddenly becomes secondary to the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived and died on our behalf, that we may experience the forgiveness and grace of a righteous and holy God spending eternity with him. The biggest problem we have, which is our sin and our distance from God, it's been restored through the love of God. We now have peace with God, and we have an eternal hope that will not fail us. I sat down and I laid my cards on the table with the students. I didn't plan to have this conversation with them, but apparently God had different plans. I'd explained that I'd been absent from school a number of times since September. And some of you this morning may know that my uncle Gary Middlestad, who passed away in September. And shortly afterwards, my father-in-law was suddenly admitted into palliative care. He was diagnosed with a complicated virus in his brain that would take his life a few weeks later. I experienced two major sudden losses in the span of a couple months. And as a result, I'd missed a couple weeks of work. My students knew that, but we hadn't really talked about it. So we talked about it. And one of the things I explained was that it's a strange feeling. It's strange seeing items and accomplishments and achievements left behind in a house after someone dies. 
They don't take anything with them when they go. And it really puts things in perspective, that the things that we worry about while we're alive aren't really worth our worry or our anxiety after all. There's something far more important that we should be concerned with, and that's our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because in the end, that will matter most. So 2013 was a difficult year for me. I experienced two losses. And 2019 was also a difficult year for me. Two losses again. But God is still in control. And because of Christ's death on the cross for my sins and his resurrection, I have much less fear about what's coming next. I have a hope for eternity, where every tear I arrive with will be wiped away. And then my tears will cease forever. So in the near future, yes, it does matter on this side of eternity what I'm going to do with my time and with my life living for the Lord. But the sufferings and hardship, the uncertainty and confusion that I may experience along the way, those things are temporary and they do have an expiration date. For when I die or when Christ returns, those things too will pass. And then I will have only the praises of my Savior to sing for all eternity because of God's loving sacrifice for an undeserving person like me. So, you know, in my class, one of the things that I stress most in ELA is understanding why you have an opinion. It's one of the easiest things in the world to have an opinion. It really is. Anyone can have one. What do you think about winter? Winter sucks. I don't like winter. Easy. Easy to say that. Um, So any opinion is an easy one. Apparently, um, it is difficult, though, when you have to decide where you should go out to eat. For some reason, that one takes a while for everybody. But the hard part about an opinion that requires some reflection and depth is then asking why you have that opinion. And it often requires you to reflect or return to the information you've been given or the book and then to think about it. So I think it's appropriate this morning that uh, since it's a TKS service that I give us some homework to take home. Yay! First, a question. Do you love Jesus? And why or why not? And the answer, I hope, is yes, because that's definitely the right answer. But the answer, I hope, is more than because he's nice. I'd ask you to elaborate if that's the answer that you've submitted. Because we could ask ourselves every day why we love Jesus or why we love God, and the answer will change depending on our situation. There are many reasons why God is good but we will never outgrow the gospel or our need of it. How God graciously dealt with our rebellion is of the utmost importance. And this, if it was my class, they would ask, is this for marks? Is this going to be on the test? And you know, I'm not going to test you on your answer. I'm not coming back here with a prize next week. I'm not giving you any grades or anything today or next week. But there's going to be a time when your answer to that question matters. And it could be tomorrow. And it could be years from now. Or it could be when Christ returns. But how you answer that question matters. So it's worth reflecting on it today. Secondly, because any English teacher knows that if you assign your class to read a book, 50% of the students won't actually read it. And they'll just Google summaries and then hope for the best. (laughs) The second thing is a reminder. The second piece of homework is a reminder and an encouragement to actually read the book. Actually read the book. Or have someone read it to you if it's difficult. Or listen to the audiobook. Because the answers to your homework question 
which is the most important question you're going to be asked. The answers are in the book. Jen Wilkin, who wrote a book about how to study the Bible, writes, The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. If you want to feel deeply about God, we must learn to think deeply about God. So when we devote ourselves to reading scripture and further learning about who God is and what God did for us, our answers to the question, why do you love Jesus, will grow in passion, understanding, detail, and appreciation. And so as we face our lives ahead, the school year ahead, our present circumstances, whatever they may be, may we always remind ourselves of the love God has for us and why we love him. What a blessing it is to be part of the King's School where there's this taught, celebrated, and encouraged.